And as we get ready to um, hear the sermon this morning, uh, I just want to make a comment, and I just want you to all look around a little bit. Look at the people around you. Go ahead, turn around, look around. So, about a year and a half ago when we came here, COVID was still kind of on the edge, and we saw maybe 30 or 40 people a week. And a lot of churches didn't survive COVID. But Oasis Church is still going strong. And you know how I know the church is alive? Well, there's a lot of ways. But one way is while Kevin was reading the scripture this morning, I heard a baby crying. And I've, it's not my phrase, but I've often repeated the phrase that if there ain't crying, the church is dying. <laughs> so whoever's baby was crying while Kevin was reading I want you to know that brought a smile to my face. We are not the kind of church that's going to give you a cold stare if the child makes a little noise. We welcome them here. We're thrilled that they're here. So be here with your children and don't be worried about it. And by the way, the Gatlin girls were great dancers this morning. And that reminded me of my girls who will be embarrassed now that I said so but they used to do that too when they were that age and I love to see that so as you I want you to look around one more time look around one more time and look at someone that maybe you don't know and as I pray before I begin the sermon I want you to pray for that person okay pray that God will do something amazing for them by his word this morning in their hearts, okay? So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for children in the church. Thank you for your living word that is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing between flesh and marrow. Lord, we thank you that you are speaking to us through your word. We thank you that so many are turning out for our D6 to learn more about you in that class that more are coming on Sunday morning worship to come and hear you, as well as those online. Lord, so many people are listening to hear your word. And boy, do we need it, Lord. And we thank you. Now, Lord, as, as I've asked people to pray for those that they're seeing together this morning, may we ever be attentive to every need in the church that we are finding out, that we can see what's out there. And how we can encourage each other in the faith. But Lord, let us far, our foundation continually be the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you see the title of the message already up there. Uh, pointing to Christ, we're continuing to look at the ministry of John the Baptist as Luke records it in Luke chapter 3. And of course, we know more about John the Baptist than just what Luke wrote because other gospel writers wrote about Luke as well. Uh, just a quick recap from last week. Last week, we were looking at the idea of repentance and actually the work week before that we were too. Um, we were talking about the reality of repentance last week. The big idea last week was that sincere repenters seek ways to live anew. And then we had the three points that we talked about that when repentance is preached, there are spontaneous responses, not all the time and not every time, but there are, that egotistical people become benevolent. In other words, people who would uh, only want for themselves now are 
feeling generous, and then malcontents find fulfillment. In other words, complainers find uh, finally some peace that they realize I've got much to be thankful for and I don't need to complain. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 15 through 17. I'll read a longer part than that so that we have the context, because context is what? Context is king. We always want to read scripture in its context so we can understand it more fully. The big idea this morning is that preachers of the gospel must point to Christ. Preachers of the gospel must point to Christ. And the three points this morning that we're going to have is that only Jesus is the Christ. Only Jesus. Number two, Christ must increase while the preacher decreases. And three, Jesus' baptism is of fire. We're going to find out what that means. So next week, Lord willing, we'll look a little further and we'll see at the consequences that can come with um, bold preaching. Um, Not to give away the whole story, but John lost his head over it. But uh, starting at verse 7, I want to read for you. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Similar to the, we just read the Transfiguration. Today is actually, for some of the more traditional churches, is Transfiguration Sunday, which is the reason that those were the readings uh, that we had this morning. But the similar phrase, this is my son, we'll get to that, not this week, but to this week we're going to focus on 15 through 17 or 18, see where we get. 
Um, the big idea, though, remember, is preachers of the gospel must point to Christ. Preachers of the gospel must point to Christ. Only Jesus is the Christ. Christ must increase while the preacher decreases, and Jesus' baptism is of fire. So let's go back to verse 15. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, the people of Israel had been waiting a long time for the Messiah. Even today, devout Jews who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they continue to be in expectation of the Christ. The Jewish people had a long history already by this time. History of wars and oppression and slavery and exile. So they most certainly had been hoping and in expectation for the arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, who would bring them into a new era of peace and prosperity. So these people watched whenever a dynamic person arrived on the scene, um, they would wonder, is this the Christ? In fact, some had claimed to be prophets, and some had claimed to be the Christ, but so far there had only been disappointment. Now comes onto the scene one who Jesus later would say was the greatest prophet. In Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus said this about John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Jesus would go on to say that John was the Elijah to come. John was an interesting character. In many ways, he resembled the Old Testament prophets. You know, he, he dressed in camel's hair. Um, he had a strange diet. Uh, his preaching was getting attention. It got the intention of the sincere as well as the insincere. It isn't surprising then that as John the Baptist's fame became greater, and as we understood from last week's sermon, that something real was happening. And so it was not surprising that people began to wonder and ask this question, whether John was the Christ. And so they were questioning in their hearts, and then most certainly some of them out loud as well as they discussed with family and friends, the question on everybody's mind was, is this the Christ? And in John's gospel, and let us not confuse John, the writer of the gospel, uh, and the disciple of Jesus with John the Baptist, two separate people, remember that. But in John's gospel, we see some more detail about this. And so I want to read from John chapter 1, starting at verse 19, so that we have even more context, which is good, right? And so let's look at John chapter 1, starting at verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, 
Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So we see there in the Gospel of John um, a further account uh, confirming what happened here. Now, I didn't have this in my notes, but as I read it, it occurred to me a common confusion that people have had sometimes about that is, well, John said he was not Elijah. Jesus said he was Elijah. Is the Bible contradicting itself? And uh, so we need to understand that he wasn't actually Elijah. He was Elijah, the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of prophecy that Elijah had was on John, and that's what Jesus was confirming. But he wasn't literally like Elijah reincarnated or something like that. So again, I'm going to keep returning to this because it's so important. I don't know, some of you listen to other preachers during the week, and I'm glad because you're probably getting better preaching. But remember this, preachers of the gospel must point at Christ. If you're listening to a preacher that doesn't point to Christ, stop listening. If I stop pointing to Christ, kick me out. The three points is that Jesus is the Christ. Christ must increase while the preacher decreases and Jesus' baptism is of fire. So John had this important role, a very important role. He was to be the one who had been prophesied in Scripture, a forerunner, a waymaker for the Christ, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But as much as John the Baptist must have sensed the importance of his role, he himself remained a humble servant. One who simply was proclaiming the truth that comes from another. One who simply points and says, here he is. And in this role, John did an exemplary job. He wanted people to know that only Jesus is the Christ. Well, certainly it may have tempted many modern preachers if the crowd around began to ask whether this is our Savior. Many preachers, I believe, in our time and throughout history may have been tempted to say, well, yes, I am sort of your Savior. Or some might come right out and say, I am the Savior. And it has happened throughout history. But John shows as an example to every preacher who would come after him the type of humility that should be found among those who preach. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We see a a similar passage as well about John and his role and how he saw himself compared to Jesus. In John chapter 3, starting at verse 28, where it says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease, but I must decrease. So John says not only is he not the Christ, he wants everyone to know I'm not the Christ. And apparently he had answered this question many times. And he was adamant. I am not the Christ. He who is mightier than I is coming, 
the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, to fully appreciate how self-deprecating John is being in this moment, we must understand what it meant in that society to bend and untie someone else's sandal. Now, I've heard folks over the years say, well, you should study nothing but the Bible. Don't worry about what anyone else has written, only the Bible. However, when we use other information, such as historical facts and learning about the geography of the areas described in Scripture, when we learn more about the customs and the culture of the time where the, whatever passage we're in is written, then we can have a more full understanding of what a text means. In Bible study, which is the fancy word is hermeneutics, some of you have had a class called hermeneutics if you went to Bible college or something like that. But in Bible study, we include this as one of the major understandings of how we're to understand Scripture. Some of you uh, came to uh, my class on Sunday evenings uh, some time ago that we did on the Bible, and I taught this, that our first goal in Scripture as we read it, is not to immediately jump to the point of application. In other words, we don't want to just read a passage and immediately start talking about, well, what does that mean to you? We don't want to do that right away. We will get there later. But the first thing we want to do when we start reading is we want to understand what the passage meant to the original people to whom it was written, who would have heard it or heard it read at least in their congregation or maybe read it for themselves, and then after we understand what it meant to the, the people that it was originally written to, then we can start talking about what does that mean for us. And, uh, and so that's one of the things we want to always keep in mind. And this is because one major rule in Bible interpretation is that the passage cannot mean anything other than what the author intended it to mean. And so we need to figure out what did it mean to that author, to that audience. Now, how does it apply today? That is not saying we can't apply it. We do apply it. But we must understand that we, when we take time to understand the times and the customs of where this happened, the traditions of that time when it was written, we will be better off and have a more full understanding. So we sometimes look at other writings and other historical documents of that time to learn more about what certain things mean. In this case, we are helped by Jewish writings, particularly concerning the duties of slaves. And in a home at that time with servants or slaves, it was demeaning to be asked to untie someone's sandals. In fact, a Jewish person may even have a Jewish servant, but he would never have a Jewish servant do this. Another Jewish person would never ask another to untie his sandal. That's how demeaning they saw it. Only the lowest, lowest slave would ever be asked to do that. So what John is saying then is that in comparison to Jesus, he is the very lowest, the most humble servant, the most wretched slave in comparison to Christ, whatever power the people perceived John to have, whatever anointing, whatever commissioning from God, he is next to nothing. Now, was he really of nothing, of no value, of no repute? No, certainly this was not the case. Remember what Jesus himself said of John. No one greater has been born among women. Jesus certainly did not think little of John. 
just remind me, I have a friend named John Little, so that's kind of funny. But side, side note. Anyway, um, he didn't think little of him. He, he knew, Jesus knew, that John had this very significant role in the redemption plan. God highly favored John the Baptist. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. He was set aside for what we would for certain say is one of the top five jobs in all of Scripture. Because John understood all this because he had been filled with the Holy Spirit and had this empowerment and the wisdom that comes with one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He understands, though he is still a mere creature, he's not God. He's not God-like. He's not a little God. He's not a demigod or any such thing. He's merely a servant, and compared to his master, John believes he's not even worthy to do the most humiliating task that a servant could do. He's not even worthy to untie the sandals of his master. So preachers of the gospel have to point to Christ. John sets the example for preachers today to point to Christ. And how does the preacher point to Christ? How does the preacher lift Christ up? How does the preacher magnify Christ? By preaching the word of Christ. All of scripture speaks of Christ. So this preacher must make his life's work a study of God's word. He must be in the word so deeply that his every thought must return to the word and its influence. He must do the hard work of researching the scripture finding out what those words mean. He must become a master of the doctrines of the church, not doctrines of men, but those doctrines that are set forth in the word of God. Every word of scripture preached should ultimately point to Jesus. The sermon's not to entertain you. It's not to give you warm tingles. It's not to make you love the preacher. The sermon is, is to set forth the word of God in such a way that it brings glory to Christ, it lifts him up so that men will be drawn to him. Yet this is not to be done by cleverness of the preacher or by his charisma. It is not done by shouting. It isn't done by getting a piano player to play a nice little chords as the sermon's wrapping up. It isn't found in the fanciness of the stage or the lighting or the ambience we create in the room. The impact of the preaching will have most to do with the work behind the scenes. The prayer for the church, the concern for the souls, the personal evaluation and repentance of sins, all of that to prepare for what Scripture calls the labor of the Word. The Scripture says it's work to study the Word of God. Yet in many pulpits, you will not find this hard work. You should know that there are resources by which preachers can buy subscriptions online for sermons. SermonCentral.com they can buy outlines of sermons or they can buy the entire sermon, pre-written. They'll even sell, some of them even sell them with the graphics for the screen, all to match, and you look like you worked really hard. There is an appalling laziness among preachers today. Yet there are also those who strive to do the hard work. I promise you, I will never ever preach a sermon that someone else wrote. And I promise I will do the work to study the scripture. The, preach, the sermons preached at Oasis Church will have been prepared and studied. And I ask for your prayers 
for those times when my week has been difficult and my temptation is to be lazy in my studies because I have that temptation, please pray for me. There are always distractions that come. That's to be expected. Distractions often turn out to be good opportunities for growth. But amidst distractions, just like each of you have to push forward and do the work, so do I. Now, Alistair Begg has said what a difficult thing for the preacher to preach about preaching. (laughs) Because you may be sitting there and saying to yourself, well, that's all fine and good, Pastor. Now, why don't you do that? (laughs) Well, the answer is I can't. I can't without the Spirit of God to help me. I can make no impact on anybody without his word. No one will come to Christ ever because John, Jason Hubdy was in the pulpit. All right? No one will ever move forward in their faith and maturity and growth because Jason Hubdy was in the pulpit. This does not depend on me. The rise or fall of Oasis Church and its sanctification, its maturity, it doesn't rest on whether Jason is preaching or not. But we can expect no growth, no maturity, no further sanctification without God's Holy Spirit using the means that he has determined, and that is the folly of preaching. God's spirit plus God's word plus the prayers of his people and our reliance on scripture are the means he chooses to use to do his work here. In reality, I fully realize that I can do nothing outside of Christ, and neither can any of us. So John demonstrated an attitude that every preacher must have, and that's complete humility before Christ. Now, I wish I could say I do this well all the time. But the truth is, I am tempted to give myself a pat on the back from time to time. I do tend to compare myself and my ministry to others. I find those in ministry I think aren't doing as well as me and look down on them. I find those so high above me and get jealous at times. If I were to try and say I agree with John the Baptist perfectly and live it, I'd be lying. My attitudes do not always match my profession. My life does not perfectly line up with the truths that I preach. Yet, by God's grace, in his plan, to use imperfect men to preach his perfect word, he blesses my poor efforts and at times does amazing things through preaching. So Christ must increase, Jason must decrease. If you invite someone to our church... Be sure to tell them that there are very flawed people here of whom I am the most flawed. Yet tell them that Christ is here. Tell them the word of God is taught and preached here. Tell them that God in his mercy has brought together all these different people at Oasis to grow together to be more like the head of the church who is Christ. And so preachers of the gospel must point to Christ And now, let us speak for a moment about the comparison John makes between the baptism he offers and the baptism of Christ who is soon to come. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, for many of us, when we hear the words baptism of fire, we think of the day of Pentecost, right? 
When the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples, then it appeared as tongues of fire on them. And that is a great story. You should read about it. It's in Acts chapter 2. It, w- it should be an exciting story to us about what happened that day when the church was sort of born. But if that was where we left it, we would miss the intensity of what John is actually saying here. He's not just talking about flames of fire on your head, folks. You see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in fire is not only about being empowered by the Spirit for ministry to help and comfort us. Those are all wonderful benefits we receive from God through His Spirit. In fact, some folks in the church get so caught up in having an experience like we read about in Acts that unless they see some powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit, they think God is not moving. I have had people leave my ministry before and say, I just don't feel like the Holy Spirit is in this church. What they are specifically looking for, I don't always know, but I have my suspicions. But we must remember that God does indeed choose certain times that he will move in a very powerful or unusual way. That's up to him. The truth is that the Holy Spirit is always present in the reading of God's word among God's people. If you want to be sure the Holy Spirit is active in your life, read your Bible. Yet many believers have been convinced, I would say even lied to, that unless they have certain feelings in the church service or in their private prayer time, then the Spirit is not there. Don't fall for this lie. There are severe consequences when someone believes that the only way to know the Holy Spirit is active in their life or in the church is when they feel certain things. So what do they do? They try to stir something up. When I was in Bible college, the chapel there had a balcony, and because it was North Dakota in the winter, it was too cold to walk outside. Sometimes, because I liked the sunlight, I would go up in that balcony and I'd walk back and forth and pray next to the windows. One time I was up in that balcony and a young man came into the chapel down below and he didn't know I was up there. And I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, you understand, but I also didn't want to interrupt him. But for about 20 or 30 minutes, this young man, who seemed desperate to feel something, he was walking back and forth and swaying back and forth and ranting and raving back and forth and pacing like a lion and making gestures and praying I would almost use the words violent prayer. Like he was trying, my impression was he was trying to stir something up that he wanted God's attention. He clearly wanted God to make him feel something. My heart broke for him. And yet he was young, so I prayed for him, but my entire sense of it was this. He was trying by the intensity of his words, by the aggressive actions of his movements, he was trying to make something happen. Sometimes God does not give us the experience we want. Sometimes he just guides us through his word. So if you're having the sense that you aren't feeling it from the Lord lately, you should pray, but just as importantly, you should read his word. Our own hearts are deceitful. People say things like, well, I sense in my spirit. How can you be sure? What if what you sensed was your own will and not God's and now you're putting the blame on him for what you were thinking? We are all well capable of fooling ourselves. If you want to be sure that you have heard from God, read your Bible. And if you want to hear God's word audibly, read it out loud. 
But John is not referring to experiences like Pentecost when he refers to the baptism of fire. More likely, he's referring to something like we see in Malachi chapter 3, which says this in verses 2 and 3, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God refines people through fire. We have the fire of trials, which we should rejoice at, as James tells us to rejoice because he's perfecting our faith. He refines us through his word, and yes, he refines with his spirit as well. And then in verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The sense here, if you were to do a word study, is a complete cleanup. The threshing floor is not merely going to be tidied up, but completely cleansed. Do you know the difference? Clean up your room. It's clean. Now it's been tidied. It's not clean. This is talking about a total cleansing. Okay? The chaff will be burned completely away. Fire is a cleanser in Scripture. The allusion to fire, you can see it throughout Scripture all over the place. The refiner's fire, all of that stuff. The, and Luke, who wrote the account we're now studying, by no means took this as a bad or scary thing the unquenchable fire. In fact, he considered it encouraging because in verse 18, he says, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. It was among other exhortations or positive encouragements, and this was part of the good news. Remember from last week, what was John's main message? Repent, repent. Do you see? The message, the call to repentance is good news. Why? Because true repentance is the pathway to mercy and grace that are given by God to all his elect. And so this morning, we continue, I'm going to continue to drill home the point that preachers of the gospel have to point to Christ. But Jesus' baptism is not like John's baptism. It's a baptism of fire. And that word, that phrase, unquenchable fire, is used by Jesus himself. And I want to read from Mark chapter 9 because I want to see another place where this word unquenchable fire, this phrase unquenchable fire is used. Mark 9, starting at verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus is not literally saying, because if he were, we would all be one or no armed people and blind. This is a metaphorical 
statement, but a very, very strong one by Jesus that we need to be taking sin very seriously. These are strong warnings about sin. Jesus is warning that sin has consequences. So the unquenchable fire in this case is eternal wrath that's, uh, that sinners who do not repent will experience. So in a sense, you could say all people will encounter unquenchable fire. For those who put faith in salvation, faith unto salvation in Jesus Christ, the unquenchable fire will be like that that John is talking about, a fire of cleansing. In John's case, it's a metaphor that refers to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. That means that God continually brings us closer to Christ-likeness if we're, if we're in the faith. But the fire Jesus speaks of in Mark 9 is the everlasting, unquenchable fire of hell where the unrepentant will suffer with conscience tor conscious torment forever, subject to God's wrath. And so then we have a choice. We can be baptized by fire figuratively, the sanctifying flames of the Holy Spirit baptism that cleanses us from our sins, or we can be baptized by the eternal fire that punishes for sins under the wrath of God. Those are the, the two categories of people that there will be. Those who know God and those who receive his wrath for all eternity. And when we consider that term unquenchable fire you must understand that eternal unquenchable fire it never ends it's it's never ever going to end for those who are suffering from god's wrath never it never ends never ever ends it never ends so turn to Christ, because that's the eternity in store for those who do not follow Christ. But God has provided a way, right? His way to have us have the wrath of God turned from us was Jesus on the cross receiving that wrath for us. And because he was our substitute for God's wrath, those who put faith in him, can have eternal life instead. And in the meantime, in this life here, we get the good fire, the sanctifying fire, the fire that continually purifies us before the Lord, that continually helps us to do a little bit better than we did the day before in keeping our mind pure and keeping away from sin. And I've said this many times, and it's, it's probably the thing other than Christ himself that I look forward to heaven the most, is that once we get there, we will be unable to sin. The ultimate purifying work will have been done. In the meantime, we've got to continue to fight that battle. We need to continue to understand that we don't have battles against flesh and blood, but we have battles that are spiritual battles, and we need to continue to fight sin in our lives. We need to continue to put it to death, as Paul said. And there's this warlike language all throughout, especially Paul, but throughout the Bible, when it comes to having these battles with sin. Um, years ago, we had a men's group called uh, Heart of a Warrior, and the I, I had a chance to interact with the guy who wrote the study, and he said, you know, I get a lot of people, and they ask me, why do you got to use all that war language? Is it just to stir men up and get their testosterone going or whatever? And he's like, have you read Paul? 
He writes all through. Fight this battle. It's an ongoing battle with sin. We all have different things we're fighting, but it's all sin. And so if we're in Christ, we say, Lord, help me. Purify me. We need to be in his word daily. If you're not in his word daily, you're losing a lot more battles than you could be. You could be winning more. So get in his word daily. Pray. Ask him to help you understand his word. Help him, ask for his help to apply his word. And uh, guess what? Those are prayers that he answers. When you need wisdom, ask for wisdom. And uh, so I think I'm going to wrap up, but the, uh, the point of this message is I want you to understand that the preacher has to lift up Christ. If you're listening to preachers who aren't lifting up Christ, listen to someone else. If I stop lifting up Christ, kick me out. And I'm serious about that. Or at least, well, maybe don't kick me out right away. Kick me first. <laughs> maybe I'll wake up. <laughs> but take it seriously, my friends. I don't know where everybody is. I can't examine the heart. We, there's this, the, this, this idea that the church has always had. There's the, the visible church and the invisible church. The visible people, the visible church is those who are here that are present. But the invisible church is the, what we can't see. We don't always know where everyone's at. So that's why I continually appeal. I don't know if you've been in church for one year, 10, 20, 50. If you haven't put faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, no matter how much you can repeat certain things or sing different songs or say certain prayers even, you need to know that it has to make sense to you so that you can finally put faith in Christ in a meaningful way, repenting of your sins and turning to him. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That could be someone who's been sitting in church forever. I actually read a story years ago about a guy who was a preacher for 40 years and then got saved. And we would say, how do you explain that? <laughs> I don't know. The Lord had grace. I'll explain it that way. But he has grace abundantly. All right? So let's, let's choose his grace. Let's pray, and we'll have another song before we go out into the mission field that is the world around us. Lord, thank you for your word and the impact it has made on so many in this building and online watching as well. I thank you, Lord, that we can depend upon your word. I thank you that your word always points to Christ. I thank you, Lord, that you're showing that to us. Lord, I pray for this congregation. I pray 